what you're actually buying is a reduction in sick days and healthcare related expenses. And we can actually model it out and quantify and project what we expect that reduction to be. In a school environment, schools are funded based on two primary metrics, butts in seats and student performance. If we can implement a solution, this has nothing to do with COVID that actually impacts the transmissibility of common cold, seasonal flu, norovirus, staph infections. If we can keep more kids in the classroom. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Eli Harris. Eli, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. We're working hard and glad to meet you all. So I definitely want to hear about DJI and EcoFlow and stuff, but let's start off with with your latest excitement. Tell us what R0 does and about your crazy light. Yeah, so modern biosafety company. We started looking at hospital grade technology, kind of deciphered and and broke down why they have not been uh, socialized and commercialized to industries outside of the hospital setting. We learned a lot of it was a uh, function of our healthcare system and not a result of the technology or what it costs to build them. And and that really launched us on our journey in the wake of COVID to make hospital grade technologies accessible to any organism. From that, we've, we've evolved and really are working towards building a holistic, almost OS or an operating system around disinfection in any physical environment. And it's been a pretty exciting journey. We're 18 months old. We've grown largely remotely in those 18. We've raised a lot of money, more than $70 million from the, the likes of DBL, the fund behind Tesla and SpaceX and John Doerr, who was the first investor in Google and Amazon and Uber. And, and we've uh, done almost over $40 million in bookings. So in 18 months, we've started climbing a pretty big mountain. We have, we have big ambitions. Uh, I think we've done a good job getting the right group of people together and we're very aligned in our goals, but we got, we got a long way to go. Yeah. What, what do you figure your valuation is now? You know, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, to, to speak about that. Because <laughs> I, saw, I saw one in the blurb and I was just wondering if that one was up to date, but... Yeah, we'll we'll be raising another large round early next year, and uh, okay. it's, yep, yep. Wait, wait, wait. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe we will go back in history just a bit. Can you talk about kind of starting EcoFlow and and kind of where they've gotten today, and then I want to hear what kind of lessons you've taken from that for for R zero. Yeah, I, I, so I started my career in mainland. I'm going to go even a step further back, but uh, feel free to, to tell me if it's uh, irrelevant or uninteresting to you. Sure, sure. Uh, but I, I initially wanted to work diplomacy. I thought I wanted to work foreign service. Uh, I did a couple Fulbright scholarships, and I, I, I got jaded pretty quickly as I learned more and more about what foreign service really meant. I, I was kind of rosy-eyed, naive, and, and thought that my own ideas about the world could have some influence on shaping a, a new generation of global youth that don't see borders and kumbaya. And, and then I realized that really, I mean, working foreign service, you have a fiduciary duty to a national mandate. And you are there to execute a national mandate. And your own convictions and ideologies aren't actually that. But I, I was spending a lot of time in China. And to, to be honest, I feel like people always expect some nuanced answer. But I was just having fun. And doors were opening. And I was learning Chinese. And I was pretty darn good at learning Chinese. And, uh, and that was a positive validation cycle. And and it just it led to one opportunity after another. I, I walked into a hotel in Shanghai and saw somebody in a Santa Barbara t-shirt and that turned into a job at DJI. So then I ended up going down south to Shenzhen and I, I had never been to the city. I moved there with one suitcase. 
a city of 14 million people took this job. And I, I was, I think at the time I was 23 when I took the DJI had thousands of employees. They only had about a dozen non-Chinese employees based in Shenzhen. And just by virtue of just being there and showing up and, and learning the language and being competent enough and projecting confidence, I was given a lot more responsibility uh, than I was qualified for. And, and frankly, more responsibility than I ever could have commanded at my age in the US. And I love that. Um, and I got to help DJI found and build their entire commercial business in the North America and in Europe. Uh, and it was really looking at how do we integrate drones into commercial verticals like agriculture, public safety, construction. And, and I got to go meet, I went to 16 countries meeting with execs from Fortune 500 companies, understanding how could drones serve their core. And that was really exciting. One thing I, I, I learned in that is, I mean, if you're a hobbyist flying a drone for 20 minutes, taking selfies on the beach, that's all great. If you're trying to map an oil pipeline or a large farm or looking for a missing person, you got to keep a drone in the air much longer. And, and that set me off on batteries. And I got very uh, excited about and interested in, in batteries and worked closely with the battery engineering team in sort of understanding the, the capabilities and limitations around sourcing, manufacturing, developing battery technology globally, but largely in mainland China. I ended up spinning out of DJI with two engineers there, both battery engineers, Chinese national, and the three of us started our own business. We went on this mission to build a large lithium ion battery pack, uh, 1.5 kilowatt hours that could effectively compete with the Honda gas generator. And that was, we saw the whole world moving to renewables, whether that's grid storage or vehicles, transportation. But for some reason, we're still using fuel combustion for this very simple application. The gas generator market, just Honda alone, sells $2 billion a year in portable gas generators. And, and to be honest, they don't achieve anything that a battery can't achieve. They're also awful for the environment and you can't run them indoors because of carbon dioxide. So, so that was our mission, we went, and we started building. We, we ended up raising a lot of money, spending a lot of money. We, we built- How, how much did you guys raise all? During the time I was there, we raised about $20 million, stood up two manufacturing plants, opened up offices in Japan, in San Francisco. Uh, of course, we had a headquarters in Shenzhen. We stood up our own manufacturing, built a lot of partnerships. We ended up shipping 200,000 products to 37 countries. But the truth is that batteries are, are very capital intensive. And, and I, I was uh, a founder and I was the CEO of the company. I ran it for four years. My whole heart was in it. It was my whole identity. I, I lived and breathed it. But batteries are expensive and our unit economics weren't great and we weren't profitable. And we kind of subscribed to the Silicon Valley model of raise spend, raise spend, and then the capital markets tightened and there were tariffs slapped on the products. It was at the height of the trade war between Pr Chairman Xi and President Trump. We had to raise more money. We were struggling. We, we found some new money. But to be honest, uh, being the founder and the CEO and, and, and going through the growing pains we were going through, I mean, that fell back on me. And, and at that time, as we brought in that new money, uh, we did some corporate restructuring. And, and with that, I was actually re really let go from my role as, as, as founder and CEO. And I was offered a buyout. And I and it, it was tough. I mean, I you know I, I put my whole heart into this, and I didn't realize something like that could happen. But you know, I was I was you know young and naive and scared, and 
to go through that motion of, of building a company and raising and growing. And, and, and we did some pretty exceptional work. You know, I, I felt a, a little bit like a, a lack of control and experience and I was scared and I accepted the buyout. And I, I had, I mean, for my age, it was a nice liquidity event. It wasn't, you know, happily ever after right off into the sunset on a yacht, like I fantasized, but it was a, a, an experience. But what's, what's been a little bit bittersweet is that, that the company I founded, EcoFlow, has, has really gone on uh, to do well, and they're now valued over a billion dollars, and they are officially a unicorn, and they are on fire. And I, and I, you know, nobody can take away from me that I started that, and I'm very proud that I started that. But I, 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 I'm no longer a part of that journey. So, quick, quick question on that. So, one of our big pushes at our uh, real estate fund right now is we're trying to do like, like, really, really artistic, like action sports adventure tiny cabins to put on Airbnb. Like yep. trying to like push the limits further than just A-frames and yurts and the typical unique stay on Airbnb. And, you know, like basically like build like mini Woodwards, you know, put the kind of mountain bike jumps in that people need to go to the hospital for, you know, like we're gonna have to have a lot of waivers for this thing. Right. But just like really push to the like genuine adventure kind of angle. And so we're doing joint ventures with these landowners all over the place. And tons of this is off grid. And so we've been looking at, EcoFlow competitors, you know, Jackery or, or ones like that. It is interesting how much more is possible than like when I was a kid because of because of that whole industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, across every major industry where we're seeing the transition to electric, I mean, even power tools. Right. I mean, I, I think it was the state of California just put a ban on using uh, corded power tools. It's all going battery. I, I, I butchered that, but every every industry is moving electric from large scale grid storage to transportation of vehicles to even your power tools. Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, that's a story that's very common of founders creating something super awesome and then getting pushed out by the money, right? When you think about the good parts of that experience, what are some of the main lessons that you've brought with you over to R0? Yeah, people, context, communication. I mean, I, there, there were a lot of hard lessons learned, setting boundaries and how we raise money, who we raise from, when you raise. I mean, my, my two partners in this are exceptional, Ben Boyer and Grant Morgan. We all have very different core competencies. Ben's actually a venture capitalist by training. He was a 25-year venture capitalist. He was one of the first investors in Lyft, Event Plan Grid, Doctor on Demand, ResearchGate. He's had some really big exits. He, he ended up starting his own fund. He raised and deployed $4.5 billion of capital. And this is his first time ever operating in a company full-time. So he has walked away. He closed his seventh fund, and he walked away from a, a multi-million dollar a year salary to get in the trenches with Grant and I and build this thing. And having been on the inside, it is, it is a master class. I mean, the amount of money we've raised, who we've raised from, the terms of those raises, we've already acquired a company. We're looking at a couple more acquisitions. And that's really the the, the strategic guidance and adult supervision that, that Ben can provide us. And he really gives us a lot of air cover, puppeteering a lot of our, our corporate development. So Grant and I can really focus on building. And Grant, I mean, he is a, a merciless operator. He's, a, he's an incredible engineer. And he is really driving our product development and running this business day to day. And then that frees me up to just go be myself and run around and, and drive the business forward, largely focused on revenue. So I, I think, I, I mean, team is everything that we, we have shared trust, admiration, respect, love. I, I think that we, we all are, are self-aware enough to understand the, the value each other brings to the table. And, and I think, it, I mean, 
as I've sort of making investments myself uh, in making angel investments, I, I would never invest in a single founder. This stuff is, is really hard. It is really hard to build a company and you need multiple people with complementary skills who have all of their skin, all of their emotional, political capital in this. It, it is, it is hard stuff. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was watching the like Dr. Phil giving a shout out to your guys' device and how they use it for their, for their show to keep everybody safe. You know, I'm interested on the product development side. When you think about, when you think about creating something that not just fills a need, but creates that emotional want from people, what's your philosophy or what are your, what's your approach of like, you know, there's the stake in the sizzle. There's like, does it actually work? Is it yeah. any good? And then how do you make it desirable? Lo love that question. And I I'm going to answer it in two different ways. Uh, one being the emotional psychological, and then one being really the value we're delivering in, in, in the bottom line. I, I think one thing we talked about early on in this company is the parallels between 9-11 and this pandemic and how there are certain events throughout history that create everlasting societal and infrastructural changes. After 9-11, you have the Department of Homeland Security. You have TSA with 14,000 agents. You still can't take a water bottle or wear shoes to the airport. You go to a sports game, you walk through a metal detector. That is all a direct result of 9-11. Some of the psychological pain of that event accelerated the creation and adoption of those standards, but we never regressed. Fundamentally, the world took on a new posture around security. And I think what we're seeing now is that word security is being expanded to biosecurity, biosafety, how all organizations, regardless of what kind of organization you are, respect and interact with the health, the, the physical health of their uh, staff, their patrons, their community, whoever interacts with their space. So I think there is a fundamental psychological shift in, in the responsibility that the public, employees, customers are placing on those organizations. And, and I, I do not think we will regress. So, so that is the kind of emotional, psychological. Where this gets really interesting is that the tools we've used previously in infection prevention are not that sophisticated. It's largely been dominated by this massive hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap chemical empire. And our response to the pandemic was to go around and use chemicals. Chemicals only address surfaces. There is no real technology. There is no compliance. And, and they're not addressing all the vectors of transmission. In a lot of our product strategy, we're, we're building solutions that actually address real-time risk. And we can address human-to-human, -human, air, surfaces. And we can do it autonomously, continuously, in real time. And in a way that scientifically and statistically can lower the risk of infection in any physical space. And where that gets interesting is what that actually means to an organization's bottom line. So I'll give a couple examples here, but all large companies are self-insured, which means that they're paying healthcare-related expenses for their employees. So if we can implement a solution that materially reduces sick days, doctor's visits, hospital visits, that is actually a hard cost saving for that employer. So we can walk into a space and say, you know what, you're not buying the product. What you're actually buying is a reduction in sick days and healthcare related expenses. And we can actually model it out and quantify and project what we expect that reduction to be. In a school environment, schools are funded based on two primary metrics, butts in seats and student performance. If we can implement a solution, this has nothing to do with COVID that actually impacts the transmissibility 
of common cold, seasonal flu, norovirus, staph infections, if we can keep more kids in the classroom, that's a revenue opportunity for the school. They're funded based on daily attendance, not to mention attendance is directly correlated to performance. So if we can keep kids in school, they'll also perform better. Uh, and every industry has its own analog of this. So we're now working with the uh, Harvard Chan School of Public Health and uh, a few other organizations, and we're building real clinical and observational case studies. Because right now, I'm out in the field jumping up and down saying, look at the science, look at the science, the science says it works. Here's a model of what we expect to happen. But over the next 12 months, we're actually building up uh, a, an entire database of case studies actually showing hey, here's how we impacted healthcare-related expenses, attendance, performance, productivity, retention of your staff. And we can actually build this data set showing how creating safer spaces actually impacts the bottom line of these organizations. And once we can do that, this becomes a very interesting opportunity. Well, and for anybody who hasn't seen the unit, which is going to be a lot of people listening here, right? It's how tall is that, the column? Yep. Yeah, so, so you're, you're talking about our flagship product, which is the, the arc, R0 yeah. ARC, and that is a mobile UVC tower. It's about six and a half feet tall. It's on locking casters. That, that is designed for unoccupied spaces. The precedence of that is we've been using these in hospitals for 80 years now, and they use them to as part of the terminal clean to disinfect and essentially sterilize operating rooms in between surgeries. And what we've done is we've evolved that technology. We, we've improved upon it. We, we built a, a darn good piece of hardware. And then we've added a software layer, so it actually transmits data in real time. And you can actually see in real time who ran it, what room, what time. So you, for the first time, you actually have an audit trail, a disinfection. Yeah, and for, for anybody trying to visualize this, it's what? Eight inches, 10 inches around? What's, how big is the circle? Yeah, it's probably about, an, uh, probably about an eight, 10 inch diameter, six and a half yeah. feet tall. And you, you wheel on, it from... It's on wheels. Yeah. Yep. It's on uh, three-inch casters. They all lock for... And you, you wheel it room to room and you run it in unoccupied spaces. It essentially nukes that room, everything in the air, all the surfaces, and you are bringing that viral load down to near zero. Uh, so that is for unoccupied spaces. And, and, and we, we evolved what exists in the, in the hospital setting today. And we've optimized it, made it dynamic and accessible to schools, corporate offices, gyms, professional sports teams, where our entire future is installed assets. It's built in the walls, built in your ceilings, it's sensors. We can actually collect data in real time on how your spaces are utilized, building utilization, occupancy, density, carbon dioxide, VOCs, particulate matter. We can in real time measure what's in your space, how your space is being used, and then that automatically informs the use of the devices in your ceiling, on your wall. And then, by the way, those are real-time sensors, so then you can validate exactly what happened and how that changed what's in your space. So it, for the first time, it's, it's, it's a closed-loop uh, system, and, and that's never existed before in biosafety. So I have a marketing question for you. Tell me about the decision or, or how you guys thought about the decision of do we put pricing on the website, do we not put pricing on the website? Yeah, that's a good question. We have so many different models for how we sell this. We have subscriptions where, where folks actually don't own the hardware. They can sign a, a one, two, or three-year subscription, and we provide we provide the product, the software, the warranty, the servicing, uh, or people can buy it outright as a CapEx expense, and they can own the hardware, and they can pre-purchase years of service and, and software and warranty. 
uh, or they can pay as they go. They can own the hardware and buy the data package as they go. I mean, we, we have so many different SKUs. We have so many different channel partners. This is also often being bundled into larger products and larger retrofits that, to be honest, it was, it was confusing. And it, it's a lot easier to understand a customer's need and, and help build a holistic solution that, that meets that need. I, I don't know if that was a clear answer, but we, we have so many different SKUs and models that it, it was just overwhelming. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested in this. I, I've thought a lot about this. I've talked with a lot of different CEOs about it. And my thought is when you think about overcoming, because it's, it's so much of a bigger hurdle to get them to make that call, because when there's no price, people just assume it's too expensive, right? When you think about the level of marketing to get them to make the call, because you've got a genuine concern of, we don't want to confuse people before talking to them. How do you think that through of like, you know, we're going to make it so compelling that they're willing to do what, you know, so many people won't do when they don't know a price. Just that there isn't competition and you've genuinely got something that they can't get elsewhere. So you, if they want it, you're the only source. Or how do you think about that? That's part of it. What we're offering is pretty novel. I also believe that folks actually want to learn right now. There's a lot of people who want to collect information there. It hasn't been that hard for us to get engagement and have dialogues. This is very relevant and in, in an issue that a lot of folks are trying to solve and want to understand how we can add value. Get, getting engagement is pretty easy. It's driving it down the funnel that's a, that's a bit harder. I mean, this is, in a lot of instances, a, a pretty political decision. Unfortunately, science has been politicized. There's many stakeholders involved. So the engagement has not been an issue for us. Interesting. I am interested marketing-wise. When you think about what videos to make, what materials to make, what not to make, um, what's your decision tree there? So I, I, I want to uh, be very forthright that this is absolutely not my my special <laughs> what, what, what I focus sure. on for, for us. But yeah, I mean, I, I think education is a big barrier right now. Folks in the healthcare setting really understand this technology in any other industry. It is not new technology, but it is new to these industries. And there is a bit of an education gap. And it, it, it looks there's also an oversaturation of information right now. I, I think most of these facilities managers, whether you're in a school, a commercial real estate building or a hospital, in the wake of COVID, they're hammered with every day, dozens and dozens of vendors reaching out to them saying, I have the answer. I have the silver bullet. And there's so many different technologies out there. I think it's very difficult to sift through it. So we've really tried to be extremely digestible, communicate high level, educate these concepts and I, I don't think ever trying to say we have the answers to the silver bullet. It is a layered approach. We have tools that could be a fit for these organizations. We're not trying to debunk and say, don't buy this and buy us. This is, I think there's just a lot of larger education that needs to happen. And all of this dialogue is good for us. I'd say any, any discussions around disinfection, biosafety, UVC, sensors, software, I, I, I think it's all positive movement in uh, really changing the role of facilities managers. I mean, facilities managers now have to be epidemiologists. Uh, that, that, that was never a requirement before. So it, it, it is it, the, the role of these facilities managers is changing. I don't know if I answered your question at all. I'm just, I'm just rattling off thoughts. No, no, it's interesting. <laughs> Let's go a different direction, a different kind of marketing, in, investors and fundraising. You know, I kind of got my start in the, the finance world in the early 2000s and some things are still the same. Humans are still humans. And then some things are different. And I, I've certainly seen an evolution over those years. I'm interested in your philosophies or your approaches or, or if there's founders today who are getting ready for next round. Like 
successes? Yep. What's what's a principle that's worked for you for fundraising? Raise early, raise often, raise more than you think you need, and don't be precious about valuation or dilute. For most founders, you know, trying to do something big, it's a binary outcome. You're either going to make a lot of money or you're not. And you want to get the best shot on gold possible. This is really, really hard stuff. And, and you want to have the right people at the table, the right mentorship, the right investors who can open up doors for you, who can coach you, who can offer resources. I, I think that we've been extremely generous. We, we've, we've quite a lot. I mean, in 18 months, we did a pre-seed round. Or I guess we did a seed round. We did an A and we did a B. In 18 months, we've, we've raised $70 million. We've diluted it a lot. And my ownership of the company isn't that huge. Uh, but... If this works, I mean, I don't care about making $500 million versus $400 million versus $300 million. What I want is to get to an outcome. This is really hard stuff. And I'd much rather not be valuation sensitive, get in the right people who can really help this business grow and give us the best shot on goal. I think that also holds true for employees. I think we've been extremely generous. Every single employee has equity, every single one, regardless of role. And we've actually been pretty darn generous in those packages. We've also invested a lot actually in having presentations and Q&A sessions for our employees to educate them on what are options and how do, they, how do they work and what is a strike price and what does this mean for them as we issue more shares and as we grow. And we've, we've really invested a lot in empowering our team as owners. And especially, I mean, we, we want to get top talent. And, and I mean, we're poaching people out of Google, out of Amazon who actually have seven-figure salaries. And we're not paying seven-figure salaries, so we have to be generous in our equity or options grants and, and educate them on uh, what that could mean for them someday based on the track that we're on. So I guess my, my advice would be don't be scared of dilution. Get the right people on board, whether it's an investor or an employee, and you're either going to make money or you're not. It's likely going to be binary, and this stuff is hard, and you want to have the best shot on gold possible, and that means getting the best people around the table. Why do you think it's so hard for founders to migrate to that mindset? I mean, because it, it, it becomes your identity. I mean, you, it, it, is, it is so emotional for a founder. It is your baby. I mean, you, you give everything to this. It's, it is seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And, and it, it's hard to let go of that ownership and, and, and pride and emotional connection. And, and you think about all the, the literal blood, sweat, and tears you may have put into it and all the time and all the heartache. And you're like... Does this person really deserve, you know, to have, are, are they one-tenth as, as valuable as I am? Do they deserve that? This wasn't their idea. They, they weren't awake for the last two years, not sleeping the night, worrying about X, Y, or Z. It's, I, I think it's, you, you, you think that all of your team and employees and investors are going to need to care as much as you care, but that's never going to happen. And that is part of the sacrifice you make as a founder for, for a lot of your people. I mean, we're getting to a scale right now where a lot of people, it is just a job. And that's so hard to accept when, when we've given so much and cared so much. And yes, I, I think it's it, it, it's really difficult to 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 give up some of what you feel like you created. I, sorry, I'm not I'm not being that articulate. Most I just of, want your yeah. honest answer. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Uh, so another question. Um we were talking a little bit before the show about you're you're in Salt Lake today. Tell me what, tell me why Utah is magnetic to you guys. Like you're you know you're already in Silicon Valley. You've got all these connections, places you could go anywhere. 
What was what was magnetic about Utah for you? Yeah, so we we definitely are a remote first culture. We, what most of our staff is is and and we don't require anyone to be in the office. It's it's it's, it's optional. But I mean, California is not as friendly of an environment to build a company anymore. Of course, you have just you know taxes that you're paying, but also talent is expensive and workers' rights can be a very complicated mess as you scale. And I, I think that we're seeing a, a huge exodus out of California, largely Nevada, Utah, Texas, the Raleigh-Durham Triangle. There's, there's a lot of activity happening elsewhere. Colorado is getting pretty saturated now too. But my... What, what, Admittedly, one of our partners, Ben, loves to ski and he was planning to move out here anyways. But of the more business-friendly environments, we thought Utah had a really good quality of life. They treat people well. The tax environments are good. Employee laws are good. There's a lot of state money, a lot of state support to help evangelize and offer free resources to uh, help recruit, to help grow, help evangelize. There's growing manufacturing bases out here. And, and so like, let's talk about those state resources, for instance. Which ones have you guys looked at or who do you, like economic development, Utah or SBA yeah. stuff or what's the. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch and, and we have folks who are smarter on it than I am, but we, we are part of some economic development councils and forums, some chamber of commerce, some trade organizations. There, there's a group called Silicon Slopes, which is a, a nonprofit that works with the state and they're, they're invested in really connecting the tech community so that uh, you, creating kind of a. Were support. you out at the summit a couple of weeks ago? I, I was at the, there, there was one about eight months ago where I went and gave a kind of a TED talk uh, type event. Yeah. My part, my part, our HR team uh, was at the one a few weeks ago and we actually did get some good leads there, both uh, talent as well as sales leads. You know, it, it's interesting. So I, I've done a bunch of stuff with Clint, the the executive director, the guy that got it going with Josh. And we shot a, we shot a pilot TV show for one of the stations out here with one of the billionaires from one of those companies and done, done some different stuff. And it's fascinating. Like, like I was hanging out with him when that hadn't happened yet. And now you got the CEO of Apple speaking at it. I mean, some years they're like top three tech event in the world in like yeah. old Utah, like 25,000 people come to it or something. It's, it's uh, unique. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. It is, it is booming here. And it, it's a much more dynamic environment than I expected. I, I definitely came in with some kind of preconceived uh, judgments about, about the demographics here. And I've been pleasantly surprised. Yeah, you know, living in Canada, years in LA, like I love LA. I'm a surfer at heart in many ways, but I think I'm here for good. Like I love it here. I'm yeah. I'm always I, I feel like I'm like a Utah evangelist. Like I'm here for life now. Yeah, yeah. I always see uh, everyone here is just like, Shh, don't tell anyone how great it is. But it, it is I it, it is pretty special. I I, I I never would have, if I were to list the next hundred places, I thought I was going to live in Utah wasn't on that list. But that's kind of what makes it exciting. And, I, and I've just been really overwhelmed with how much I'm enjoying it. Uh, and I think it is a really good environment for, for our company. We've, we've actually made some exceptional hires out here. And, and I think we're also offering pretty generous relocation stipends for any of our staff that want to move out here in, in the folks who have taken, taken up that, that offer have been pretty darn happy. See, that's what I, we came out, we moved out to Heber like three years ago, South of Park city here. And that's what I was hoping would happen with Hebers. Everybody would stay on the other side of the mountains and Lehigh and Salt Lake and all that. But we we've been discovered and I feel like we're in like mass construction zone now. Yeah. And, and I think there's also uh, a lot of manufacturing moving to Heber. And, and again, I'm not the one on our team that's explored this, but th there is also a lot of state money helping folks bring their manufacturing out here as well. Well, and that new $5 billion ski resort, Mayflower, that's yep. on the south end of Deer Valley now, you know? Yep. Anyways, now I'm going to have to go find a new mountain to live on. That's even <laughs> So another question I have is, you know, there's so many different ways to approach business. 
And I think about folks with more of your mindset of like, how, how do we get from zero to 60 real fast, you know, mm -hmm. versus build something up over years and, and accept the, like the natural pace. What do you think it is about the tech mindset of the Silicon Valley mindset that maybe other people in other industries could adopt, but just the environment of the people in their industry don't think that's a good question. I mean, I, I think as a startup, you're at a disadvantage because you don't have scale. Right. So if you have a good idea and you're building it slowly and you're likely not the only one with that good idea and other folks will recognize it and some organizations that have scale may recognize that. And then if you're kind of building slow and steady and you have a good idea and that's, I guess, translated laterally to larger organizations, it's hard to compete because they, they have the skill that they do. So it's almost necessary in order to compete with the incumbents because you, you definitely whatever you're working on, you're not the only one working on it. And if it is a good idea, you're not the only one that acknowledges this. So I, I think that that speed to scale is is very important. Yeah, I I think that even just some of the things that you've said, I'm thinking about so many other industries that the owners won't give away upside. You know, they, they're not giving equity to, to staff. They're not like, I think about pre maybe 2011 when I was running my fund in Canada, my whole mindset in life had been like, who's the cheapest person that we can hire that can get that done, you know? And then I hired this guy named Steve Calderwood, who was like, you know, I don't know, he's like $300,000 a year employee. I, you know, I was like way more than I'd ever paid, but he was worth like 10 of our $100,000 a year employees. He's like, he was actually a deal. Do you know yep. what I mean? Yep. And I was like, I, oh, this is possible? Like, I, I definitely grew through that the hard way. And it, it took me a little bit to to unlearn. I mean, when I was building this venture in China, it, it was more like that. We were always looking for the cheapest resource, the scrappiest way to do it. And and I always thought, let's, let's stretch our runway as long as possible. And if we achieve X, Y, or Z milestone, then we'll be worth more in the next round. But what I, what I didn't realize is that, just being naive, I mean, it's stretching the runway – it, it really it didn't matter that we achieved X, Y, or Z because then we were out of money. And when you're out of money, it's not the time to raise money because any investor worth their salt, is it's very apparent in that. And then there's leverage and a power dynamic and you need the money. And, and I, 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 it would have been so much smarter to raise earlier when we had more runway before achieving X, Y, and Z mile and, and pay the right employees. We fought so hard to be scrappy. And I'm so glad I did because it forced me to do a lot myself and to learn a lot myself because we were so scrappy and, and, and I had to really get in the weeds in every aspect of the business. And with uh, my new venture, R0, we're extremely well capitalized. We're hiring aggressively. We're outsourcing a lot. We're delegating. And that's really served us well. And I have that base understanding, but I'm not in the weeds doing it. So it's been a very different dynamic. Yeah, I think another thing too is just the mindset that it's possible. You know, people build other businesses in, in energy or agriculture or things like this. And a lot of the times it takes them many decades to hit, <laughs> hit the billion mark, right? And so they're not sitting there asking themselves a the question, how can we get there in less than a decade? How can we get there in less than seven years or something like that? And just the nature of not asking the question, the, the answers don't fall on their lap. Do, do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think? Oh, I, I, I totally agree. It's and I, I, it just you kind of reverse engineer 
what you want to have. So you, you set that lofty goal and, you know, if I can wave a magic wand and have all the resources in place, like how do I hit that goal? If somebody says, I think we can do 20 million in revenue in this in this function of the business, then I can stand there and say, what what would you need to do 30, right? And it, it's just a different kind of thinking. So if you could have anything, you, you think you're going to do 20. If I could give you anything you need, what do you need to hit 30? Is it team? Is it marketing dollars? Is it resources? And it's, it's just a different kind of thinking. So along those same lines, I want to ask about a different level of thinking. With co-founders, right? I've got co-founders in a couple of my companies, right? And, you know, like on LinkedIn, it says your, your title is president, right? Which is in many ways relatively nondescript, you know? So I'm interested. With your co-founders, how, do you guys, how did you guys think about your division of labor a year and a half ago? versus now? We were even more complementary than we realized. And I, I think largely, while those are fairly nondescript titles, we're, we're, we're filling those general stereotypes. I mean, Ben has a, a, the venture capital background and he's our exec chairman and he's acting like an exec chairman. I mean, he's he's running a lot of our corp dev or financial engineering or financial strategy, M&A, executive hiring. He, he's really, you know, playing that high level and, and giving Grant that air cover to be the CEO. And Grant is absolutely our CEO. He is running this business. He, every organization has a, a hard line to Grant. And he really runs this organization from a product development mindset. And I, and I love that. I absolutely love that. It's made kind of product our core identity. And I, I, am, I am the president. And I, I, I stood up a lot of our initial sales and marketing. I, admittedly, I don't have the experience. I don't know how to scale a commercial sales and marketing organization. And now we brought in a real CMO and a real head of... And, and as the president, I mean, largely what I'm doing is evangelizing and supporting our marketing sales efforts and driving revenue and looking for unique BD opportunities. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I don't have a team. I don't have a, nobody reports to me. I, I, I report to, to, I guess, Grant as the CEO, even though we all are, are partners in this, but I, I'm just focused on driving the business forward. I just want to win. I, I, I think I am fairly self-aware and I, I, I think I'm very emotionally invested in this. I don't think I have that much of an ego. I hope I don't. I'll, I'll do anything. I, I just, I want this team to win. So pre- president is a pretty nondescript role. And I, I, I like that. I, I don't aspire to be a, a commercial operator. That's just not who I am. You know, it's interesting. I, like I'm really attracted to what Richard Branson says his job is. <laughs> he says his job is to get free ink, like get in the newspaper where you can't even pay for advertising on the front page, you know, like do the stuff that raises the profile of Virgin and obviously he's like an amazing connector and has, you know, like look at an Elon Musk, Richard Branson, these people who their personality and willing to be a face and get out there has done great things for the valuations of their organizations just by having somebody out there making waves. Yeah, I think storytelling is is really important. I mean, we're trying to do unnatural things and we need everyone to believe that we can do those things. So, it, it, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time selling and, and I mean that in the loosest form. I'm not sell, always selling the product. I'm I'm selling for recruiting. I'm selling to our existing employees on the dream, I'm to the media, the marketing efforts, to partnerships, to suppliers. I mean, all the time I'm, 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 I'm selling and that's, that's my job. And we got to get people to believe. I mean, we're trying to build something that doesn't exist. I mean, it, it's not real yet, but we're, we're making it real. Yeah. It's almost like a magic trick. Yeah. It's like literally the idea of creation, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been selling to you right now, right? I, I... <laughs> yeah. Listen, when you, think about, when you think about your career, you know, you started a company that, that 
made the unicorn status. You, you're this, you know, this business is over that, you know, into the hundreds of millions of dollars valuation kind of numbers. What do you think that you have done differently? There's, there's a lot of ambitious entrepreneurs and so many, and certainly by your age, haven't accomplished what you've, what you've accomplished. What do you think you've done? I, I just think, I think a lot of folks have inertia. I mean, if, if you wait till you're ready, you're never going to do it. You, there is never a ready state. I, I think I've, I think I've done a good job acknowledging real risk versus perceived risk. I think I think people are scared to take a leap and put themselves out there and leave their salary job to move to a new place or to resign or, or even even to terminate an apartment lease and lose your deposit. So what? Like it's you're the re, there there is not that much real risk. When my first venture failed, I moved back and moved in with my dad. But you know, I had a roof over my head and food to eat and. I, you know, it, it was great. And it, it's not, I, I don't think the stakes are that high and you have to start doing because you will never be ready. And whatever you think you're going to do, you're probably wrong. And your your thoughts and ideas and plans and directory is probably wrong. But just by starting that journey, uh, you will meet people. You will, the idea will evolve. You will evolve. But it's just, folks are just too scared to start. Once you start, something will happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think about, you know, I made enough money to retire two different times in my 20s and lost it all both times. Hence the reason I'm buying a bunch of commercial real estate this time, right? Yep. And like one of our new ones, we just got offered a $75 million development in a on a very desirable beach that everyone would know if I told about it, okay? And, you know, they already own the land outright, no debt. I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of things going for it. And I find myself hesitating and going like, you know, am I hesitating out of wisdom or out of previous failures? Like, am I just, you know, once bitten, twice shy? Or is this proper due diligence, you know? And, and so it's, it's a, uh, just an interesting thing to ask myself, right? Yeah. Yep. I totally relate. Well, listen, if people want to check out the, want to check out what you guys have built, where's the best places for them to do that? R0.com, R-Z-E-R-O.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Eli Harris R Zero. We're, we're working hard. We'll take all the support you can. We can get any ideas you have. I, I'm I'm out here, and I'd I'd love to hear from you. Cool. Well, this is great. Thanks for making time for it. Thank you. Thank you. Really. Okay, everyone. Bye. Bye.